0: Good morning and welcome to Around the World in 20 Minutes, our weekly look at what makes this planet tick. And uh, I'm back at my desk, uh, which is great. I have a week to start work on Chapter 2 of the new book, uh, which is going to come out, which is called The Last Best Hope. It's a history of American realism, and we ought to have it done in about a year, and I'll be sharing that with you. And again, I, when it comes time, please all buy 10 of them. Uh, I think it's going to be a great book. It's the result of a tremendously generous grant from the Koch Foundation. Uh, We appreciate that and uh, hope to serve them by uniting various strands of Republican and conservative thought around a realist foreign policy for the future. I mean, I can't think of bigger stakes, historical stakes to play for, than to unite the Republican Party moving ahead around a foreign policy that will serve American needs uh, for the next generation, and that I've been honored by the grant and the good wishes and the support of the Coke Foundation, the Stand Together Alliance, and I want to do them proud, and I'll be sharing that with you. So this week we're going to be writing about John Quincy Adams and the Monroe Doctrine and his famous comment that America should not go abroad in search of sea monsters to destroy She is the well-wisher of everyone's freedom, but she's the vindicator of only her own. And what a fundamental kind of thought that is. Uh, Of course, giving the great historical story, because uh, like Homer, I like to tell stories to make points. It's how human beings learn. And I have a story to tell you today, uh, which is China's protest movement that has grown up. Uh, But before I begin, let's go back a step. I think it's really easy in a democracy... To point out its failings, and the reason for this is that they're public, that we spend every day. If you read The Real Clear Politics and Real Clear World, hundreds of articles that can be sampled by day, as I do, um, you can see every single thing wrong with democracy and everything wrong with our Republican form of government in the West and around much of the rest of the world, and everything that needs fixing, and that can lead to a certain negativism over time, that you say, oh my God, we have all these problems. Uh, We're never going to solve them all. The rest of the world must be doing better than we are. And this is the fatal flaw. We do have all these problems. But as Ted Sorensen put it, who was John Kennedy's primary speechwriter and helped him write the Pulitzer Prize winning book, Profiles in Courage, Sorensen, who I got to meet late in his life, he was a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, as I was, and I was delighted. Uh, that I used this as a as a basically a grad school class where I got to talk to people back in the day who had been in the Kennedy administration, and among the people I got to talk to were Ted Sorensen, Kennedy's chief speechwriter, and uh, Robert McNamara, who had been Secretary of Defense during the Cuban Missile Crisis in Vietnam, and I used this as a way to learn as much as possible from this institutionalized memory. And so I got to talk to Sorensen, who gave me very good advice once when I was worrying about who was up and who was down in Washington. And he simply said, just do good work. And I I say that to the staff all the time. Well, let me worry about the politics, but let's be sure we do good work. But anyhow, Sorensen, very brilliantly, when asked about democracy, said, the good news to relieve all this gloom is that a democracy is inherently self-correcting. Here, the people are sovereign. Inept political leaders can be replaced. Foolish policies can be changed. Disastrous mistakes can be reversed. So, inept leaders can be replaced, stupid policies can be changed, and terrible policy mistakes can be reversed, precisely because we talk about them, precisely because we talk about them. This is our great strength. It's not a sign of our weakness. It's a sign of our strength the problem is that when you read the newspaper you hear about America's problems, Europe's problems, Japan's problems, India's problems, Brazil's problems, but you don't hear about the problems of the autocracies that often rival us in the West in terms of our interests. You don't hear about their problems because by definition they don't publicize them and so their problems go unnoticed until they explode and so on the face of it, always, democracy seems fragile, and yet this self-correcting mechanism that Sorensen talks about makes it incredibly resilient. On the other hand, autocracies seem all-encompassing and all-powerful and tend to crumble and quickly. If you look at the number of autocracies that have taken on the United States in the 20th century, the Rogues Gallery of the Kaiser, of Imperial Japan, of Hitler, Stalin, and Mao... They've all come up short. Many of them have collapsed. And yet at the time, they all seemed all-powerful. And in fact, Mussolini in the 20s, one time's man of the year, upteen times when fascism was seen as the coming thing, much more decisive than our pathetic democratic system. And yet Mussolini proved to be nothing more than the hyena of Hitler and was easily pushed aside when it came to it because democracies are brittle and in hiding their mistakes, they don't self-correct. They don't solve their mistakes. And there's no better example of this at the moment than Xi Jinping's stupid COVID policy, his zero COVID policy, that somehow an authoritarian state, by shutting down its, its, its citizens, locking them in, somehow this will stop covid from spreading as though authoritarianism could beat the spread of the common flu and throughout the last 20,000 years the flu has always won, and mankind has had to learn to live with it doesn't destroy it but waits for a milder version to come out much has just happened with covid much has just happened with the spanish flu after world war one this is normal but the idea that like king canute you can somehow stop the waves from coming in which is what the authoritarians have thought is stupid, wrong, and dangerous for them. And no one's there to say, uh, President Xi, you're, you're absolutely wrong about this, sir, with all respect, and we ought to change policy. Because if you say that, you'll find yourself working on a tractory farm, a factory, a factory dealing with tractors somewhere in the center of China. And so no one says anything, and everyone is his groupie. It'd be as if Jim Morrison were running the country. Everyone's his groupie saying you're wonderful when this policy has been dreadful, dreadful for China. And as a result of zero COVID, now Nomura, a Japanese financial consultancy, estimates that now nearly 20% of China's economy is affected by COVID restrictions. And this is up from just 9.5% a month ago. So they're doubling down on being morons. They're locking their people in Obviously, then they can't be economically productive, and they're not getting rid of COVID. The case numbers, even the China numbers, which are, of course, doctored, we all know that, even those numbers are going up. And so the cases go up, and sporadic protests are beginning to erupt in China until this weekend, when Urumqi, which is a major city in Jiangshan province, our old friend Jiangshan province in western China, which has a strong Uyghur population, non-Han Chinese, Muslim Uyghur population, particularly oppressed by the Chinese Communist Party. Urumqi has been particularly locked down as a major city where some of the residents haven't been allowed to leave their homes for over a hundred days. I mean, that's house arrest at a certain point. And there was a fire in a Urumqi recently where in an apartment block where 10 or so people were killed and many more were injured. And showing their totally tone deafness, the local Chinese communist authorities said the people were too weak to be able to survive. And somehow it's a moral failing to be burned to death when you're locked in your house. Really, that's the form of lunacy that we're dealing with here. They were told they were morally suspect because they burned to death in their house when they weren't allowed out of their house. And we think our system is worried. We're worried about Joe Biden spending too much money, which is a fact that can be relieved as it was in the midterms. Now the Republicans control the house and so the spending party is over. We think we have problems. This guy's locking people in their houses, which is impeding firefighters for putting out fires while people burn to death. And then they're being told it's their moral failing that they died. So let's not pretend the other guys don't have problems, too. We constantly forget that our rivals, particularly our totalitarian rivals, don't have problems. The difference between us and them is we discuss our problems and they pretend they don't have any. And this is true of human beings. Human beings who accept and are open-minded to getting better in life tend to get better. Human beings who pretend they're perfect tend to close off, not get better, and stagnate. And this has been at a personal level true and at a national level true, and it's been the fate historically of the Kaiser's Germany, of Imperial Japan, of Hitler, of Stalin, of Mao. It doesn't work very well if you're not open to correction. And by definition, this is mania, and no one's telling him this is crazy what you're proposing. It's not stopping COVID. You're merely retarding your economic progress and leading to vast social discontent. Well, being told that people are morally at fault for burning to death was was the straw that broke the camel's back. And now the Chinese protests, which had been sporadic up to now, have blossomed. And it's the worst single case of protests since Tiananmen Square. Um, And the students have taken the lead in two uh, universities in Beijing, one in Shanghai, and are taking the lead, rallying people and saying, we can't stay silent. Uh, to what's going on, and we, we absolutely have to protest against the zero COVID policy. And there have actually been explicit calls in Shanghai for Xi Jinping to step aside and the Communist Party to go. Now, that's not going to happen, and certainly it's not going to happen immediately, or even in the near term, or even the medium term, because as long as the army, as we saw at Tiananmen tragically, as long as the army and the police are loyal to Xi, and there's absolutely no sign that they're not. Let's be clear. There's no sign that they're not. But this is the greatest social unrest since Tiananmen, and it's a totally self-inflicted wound, utterly unnecessary, that Xi Jinping has laid down because he's not very good at his job. And we forget this, that not all the autocrats facing us are good at their jobs. And the problem with that system, systemically, is that everything depends on the czar, Everything in a totalitarian autocracy depends on the guy leading it. And Xi, as the Chinese have said, is now chairman of everything. He's taken over a third term, which is unprecedented. He's undone Deng Xiaoping's much wiser system of collegial leadership. And he's gone back to the Maoist system. I mean, his father, who was a princeling and a colleague of Mao, was overthrown by Mao. And it's the Stockholm syndrome. Xi has fallen in love with his captor. He was sent out to a cave. Um, in the hinterlands and now he's in love with his captor and is adopting a neo Maoist style back to a dictatorship away from collegial leadership in Deng and Deng was a far more effective leader than Xi. This is not the first time that Xi has run into problems. Xi was terrible on that he scared the horses as opposed to in foreign policy Deng Xiaoping's policy which was basically let's hide our light and continue to grow And we'll readdress everything in the region in another generation if we grow at six, seven, eight percent. The West grows at the United States, grows at two, the Europeans grow at zero. Uh, and we'll readdress everything after 30 more years of growth. We'll be quiet and bide our time, as, as Deng said. And this made sense. The Chinese weren't scaring anyone, yet they were becoming more and more of a superpower without anybody much noticing. And that worked brilliantly. Well, Xi, much like Mao, is a true revolutionary. He's impatient with history. And so he's undone this policy as well, which was so incredibly successful. What has he done? He's been impatient with history, and he scared the horses in the Indo-Pacific. He picked a needless border war with India, thereby terrifying them in the high Himalaya and taking vast quantities of territory along the line of actual control, the, the unofficial demarcation line between China and India, taking territory. Um, And awakening the Indians that these guys are playing for real, which has pushed them into the arms of the United States, which is not a very smart strategy if you're the Chinese communist leader. And yet he's done that. He's by crushing the democracy movement in Hong Kong, which was no threat to his regime. By crushing it, he's made it impossible to ever peacefully take over Taiwan because they can see that the mantra of one country, two systems is a joke. It's one country, one system, and that that Hong Kong's special status didn't last forever, but lasted merely a generation and was crushed whenever it suited Xi. Well, this makes everyone in Taiwan, well over 90% of the population, not want anything to do with reunification with China because they don't just want to be another crushed province under Xi's control. So he's undone his advantages there. So Because of his idiotic foreign policy, and it is idiotic, and we in the West are allowed to say this, because of his idiotic foreign policy, there's no deal with India, which has moved into America's arms. There's no peaceful reunification possible with China. So that's not an option. And in both cases, these are self-inflicted wounds. But worse, he's woken up the rest of the region to his expansionism. He picked a fight with the Australians and started a trade war because they merely had the nerve to say, we'd like to have a conference on the origins of COVID. Now, we all know the G, although he didn't you know, come up with a virus in Frankenstein's lab, certainly in law and order terms, is guilty of manslaughter, depraved indifference. Once the Chinese had the virus, they made sure the rest of us did. They locked down Wuhan and they kept open all international flights. That would be my argument for why depraved indifference occurred. Everybody knows this. Doesn't mean they came up with it in a lab. It means once this happened, they said we're not the only ones who are going to take a hit. The world is going to get sick as well, so they are indirectly responsible, but still responsible for what happened. This is obvious at a minimum. The Australians wanted to investigate. The hysterical Chinese started a trade war, alienating one of their sort resource supply sources. ASEAN has moved away from them to a neutral position. The Philippines government under Marcos Jr. has moved back to its traditional pro-American stance and away from Duterte's flirting with the Chinese. India is closer to the U.S. than it's ever been. Australia is closer to the U.S. than it's ever been. Japan is closer to the U.S. than it's ever been because the Chinese have messed around with them. In the East China Sea, they've messed around with the rest of the Indo-Pacific. In the South China Sea, and they've made it clear they're taking Taiwan one way or the other. Well done, Xi. You've managed to unite the entire region, which is utterly dependent on you economically, for an American foreign policy. The Americans have done nothing but exist. But things are now strategically more in America's favor than they've been in a generation because of Xi's idiotic anti-dung policies. And there's no discussion of this in the Chinese press. Why would there be? You'd end up in a camp somewhere fixing tractors, if you're lucky, if not in jail outright, for saying what I just said, which is utterly facts-based and in the West is matter-of-fact and commented upon. So you've screwed up your foreign policy, you've screwed up your economy, And worst of all, and this is not Xi's fault, this is the the leadership going way back, you're going to get old before you get rich. The greatest single problem with China is demography. The demographic rate, and again, their number is a joke, it's a lie, it's 1.4 children. It needs to be 2.1, which is the replacement rate. It's at Portugal, Italy, Greek, Spanish numbers. It can't be sustained. And unlike those countries, it doesn't have a safety net. So you're going to have... A very old population with a lot of money going to take care of them that's spent privately and not publicly, and you're going to have a mess. You're going to get old before you get rich. So the demography is terrible, Xi's foreign policy is terrible, and the zero-COVID policy has been an utter disaster socially, politically, and economically. This is without doubt. These are facts, and yet you can't say them. If I were in China, I'd be arrested for saying what I just said here, which is matter of fact, among people who study this stuff like I do. And this is the great problem with autocracy. Xi's policies have been ruinous. I would argue, on the other hand, Deng Xiaoping is the greatest and most important leader of the world in the 20th century that nobody knows much about in the West. And I wrote into Daremore dare more boldly my last book, the one before the new one, The Last Best Hope. I love the title, by the way, which is from Lincoln. Um, we see what's going on here that That Deng has been a great man and Xi is an utterly mediocre leader who has piggy and taken over power and his skills aren't up to it. That doesn't mean, by the way, because China has problems, we shouldn't be worried about it. As you know, I have the opposite view, that China is a peaking power, that countries are at their most dangerous, not when they're omnipotently rising to great power or superpower status, but rather when they're peaking short of their goals, as happened with the Kaiser in 1914, when the general staff said, gee, look at the Russians from a very low base, they have startlingly good economic growth after the Stalipan reforms in the early 19 aughts. And the Stalipan reforms have led to an economic boom. Much as India comes from a low base in China, but is growing at a greater rate than China. And as catch-up growth, they'll catch up to us in a generation as the Russians were doing with the Germans. So we either have to use this lovely army or lose the capacity to dominate. And so he used it. Likewise, Imperial Japan grew at 6% in the 1920s, And 1.6% in the 1930s after the oil embargo by the Americans, they either had to move forward and strike the United States and continue their war in China to try to dominate greater East Asia, or they had to withdraw. It isn't that they were doing so well, it's that they were doing badly and the window was closing for them. This is what it is to be a peaking power, and dangerously, Xi Jinping's China is a peaking power. It hasn't reached the standards of the United States. It hasn't effortlessly moved up the value chain yet for Herculean efforts, but has yet to do so. And instead, it's stopping short. It's a superpower, but it can't even dominate its backyard. This makes it dangerous. Peaking powers tend to strike out while they can. And so, it's maximum political risk peril for the United States. Not because the Chinese are so strong, but but absolutely paradoxically the reverse, because they're so weak. And that's the danger. If we can get by the next five to seven years, then the Indo-Pacific is nothing but, but positive. It's the area of the world with the greatest rate of growth. And if the political risk can be maintained, if the anti-Chinese coalition under the quadrilateral initiative, the mini-NATO, of Japan, Australia, India, and the United States continues to get its act together. If CPTPP, the trade agreement fostered by Japan around the Pacific Rim, continues to get its act together, the Chinese may well hesitate, and then all will be well. But we've got to get through this dangerous peaking power period of the next five to seven years, and then all will be well. But let's remember, it's only because of the weakness, not because of China's omnipotence, that's the problem. And I would end with a quote by the great Winston as I so often do, as you know, my favorite, the man who saved the 20th century, and we're so lucky, he was an awful lot of fun as well, but he's the most important and greatest man of the century, and I'll make that argument in some future podcast. But Churchill famously said, democracy is the weakest form of government, except for all the others. And that's right. We are the weakest form of government, except for all the others. It's messy, it's sloppy. There's so many problems. You could tear your hair out at the complexity but we at least discuss what's wrong. In Xi's China, none of the things I've said today, which would be a totally forbidden text, are wrong, but none of them can be said. And that's precisely China's problem. Thanks very much. Great fun to do this one. Please do subscribe if you haven't up to now. And for those of you who have subscribed, please do give. We're only asking for $70 a month. And for $70 a year, pardon me, not $70 a month, though that sounds good. $70 a year or $7 a month. For $70 a year, we'll continue giving you these forbidden texts that actually get at the truth of what's going on in the world. Have a great week, and now on to my espresso and to the last best hope in Chapter 2. Wish me luck.